Uh, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 187. My name is Arvid. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooliman? I'm not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Better that the Leafs, now that the Leafs are above 500, that always improves my mood a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and even more so when they beat the Ottawa Senators, whose fans have quickly become incredibly annoying. Yeah, you know... They kind of suckered us in by being sort of funny and approachable and self-deprecating while their team was total garbage. And then they got the faintest glimmer that they might not be, and suddenly they were like, man, we're going to score 14 goals a game, baby. Glad you ruined the Hall of Fame, you know, so I don't know about all that. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly like a pretty decent team. I mean, the the game yesterday was pretty close to a toss-up. The Leafs Mm. had a lot of territorial advantage. But, you know, at times it looks like kind of the Leafs at their most frustrating where they have a lot of territorial advantage. Yet it doesn't seem like they're getting really the better of chances because they can't break through their opponent's structure. Mm. And every time the opponent gets the puck, it's like they have a lot of space and time with which to work because the Leafs are, you know, transitioning back to defense. So that that's kind of been an ongoing issue in the first few games. But, you know, issue is maybe overstating it to an extent because the Leafs have generally looked pretty good um, Mm -hmm. or mostly as advertised over the first three games yeah um we'll talk about some of the takeaways that you know we can have from this first week um for the record i didn't see the game last night i was out um i saw the first two arvin saw the game last night between us we should have some sort of (laughs) complete opinion of what the leafs have been doing Mm -hmm. um this week but the overarching issue that seems to come before all others, is that Matt Murray is injured. Who could have foreseen this? <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, so he is on long-term IR at this point with an adductor injury. Yes, and one minute ago, I looked up what the adductor is, and apparently it's the muscle set on your inner thigh that helps your legs move towards the center of your body. And I'm not... A scientist, but I believe that's important for goaltending because you seem like you do that sort of thing all the time. So Murray's out for four weeks minimum, and it looks like we're going to be running a platoon of Ilya Samsonov and Eric Shalgren, who you may remember from some heroic appearances last season, even though on average he wound up not being very great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing worth noting, I guess the timeline of this, uh, I think it was said that Murray would be out for four weeks. Mm-hmm. And th- that was out for four weeks, not like we'll be reevaluated in four weeks. So I guess in about a month's time, we could expect to see Murray back if there are no setbacks. On the cap side of things, this makes life in some ways easier for the Leafs. Uh, Murray's four point something million salary goes in the LTIR pool, and the Leafs can essentially fill out a 23 person roster. So. Nick Robertson, has it's already been more or less confirmed that he'll be called up. I imagine Victor Mete will as well, possibly Wayne Simmons, um, possibly Kyle Clifford. Uh, there might be some movement up and down, but yeah, that that's the, the Leafs probably won't be playing shorthanded over this four-week stretch. Yeah, we mentioned at one point that the solution to the cap crunch might to some extent be an injury to a player making a few million, and... That appears to be what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, I don't... Timothy Lilligren's supposed to come back, I think, sometime in November. I mean, so that's broad. That could be two weeks from now to six weeks from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he comes back before Murray, that 
again like delays some of the the roster constraints that the Leafs uh have had to deal with because now they could uh bring Lilligren back onto the active roster in the using the LTIR pool that created by Murray's um injury so uh cap stuff aside how does this impact the Leafs on the ice well I guess the obvious thing is Ilya Samsonov is going to be the starter for the next four weeks he he played relatively well against the the senators yesterday and that that's good it's preferable to him playing poorly at the same time it's you know he's played two games for the Leafs um so we definitely can't start anointing him yet you know we, we I remember I, I don't think this was this isn't something that like people have thrown back at me but like when when Campbell's doing really well I said at one point on the podcast like every game that Campbell does well should give us a bit more confidence and a bit more confidence that he's actually like a legit good goaltender and I mean, I stand by the, by that in the sense that that's a reasonable thing to think. But then he very quickly became not a very good goaltender, and also his his early start in Edmonton has been mixed. Yes, yeah, he's had some ups and downs in the early going. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like the Murray discourse is going to be with us for a while. Um, if it goes really badly, this may be kind of the defining mistake of Kyle Badubas' tenure as GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. But um, whatever comes of it, I feel like we're already seeing people sort of blurring what that argument was about, to be clear. You can say it was the right idea to let Campbell go, and it was still not the right idea to replace him with Matt Murray. We did say that, or at least I ranted about it extensively on that podcast, because that's how I feel about it. I think that there were risks attendant on acquiring Matt Murray, and a huge one was that his injury history is not great. Now, you can say, well, some of that injury history was this, and some of it was this, and anyone could get injured, and this particular adductor injury, maybe this was not foreseeable, maybe it's just bad luck, but this does feel like the sort of general outcome that was very much in the range of possibilities when we acquired a guy who's been not very healthy and not great. Um, when healthy for long stretches of the past few years. So I hate to say it, but like depending on how this this goes down, Cal Dubas is going to kind of eat the outcome on this one. It, it will be his responsibility. Um, now that said, maybe Ilya Samsonov will uh, right the ship and give us the kind of goaltending that we need to be competitive. In which case you can mm-hmm. say, hey, you've made bets on two goalies and one of them worked out and that's what you, you hope would happen. That sort of has to be what Dubas is hoping for at this point. I mean, we were chatting about this a bit um, before recording, but this is this is essentially some of the disaster scenarios for the Leafs goals goaltending, which we talked a little bit about last week, and like you know how that's sort of the the ways in which the Leafs fail in the regular season and come down to most likely disastrous goaltending. This is like one path that could possibly lead there. Mm-hmm right, uh, is is the injury. It's not just like Murray slash Samsonov play and are ineffective. It's, you know, Murray slash Samsonov get injured and then you have to play worse goaltenders, which makes your expected goaltending, you know, for the rest of the season slightly worse as well. So that that's always a little nerve-wracking. It should also be worth noting that, like, if Murray did not get injured, like, the, the, that path to disastrous goaltending still existed. Like, this didn't this doesn't like completely derail where the Leafs were going on this front, but it's obviously not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this is a concern for us. And 
you know, however much you expected out of Matt Murray, you probably still would have expected him to be a better NHL goaltender than whatever third stringer we've got going on, Shalgren or Keith Petrozelli or whoever else. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, certainly some mild concerns there. People are going to want to focus on the positive, which is good, which is that Samsonov has been good enough in two games. You know, not perfect, but we talked about the goaltending only having to be good enough. Right now, Samsonov is meeting that bar in the early returns. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that kind of overhangs everything to some extent, but assuming the Leafs get decent goaltending from one place or another, um, we can talk about some trends that we've seen this week in the skaters. Yes, let's, let's, uh, let's go right ahead and do that. Yeah, so I would say one of the most encouraging things that I've seen is that John Tavares looks really good. Um, especially the first two games that I saw. I heard he was a little bit um, less dazzling last night. But uh, yeah, I, I feel positively about him. And of course, with his age and his contract and his putative decline that people were talking about last year, it's a huge thing for this team to have him stabilize at second-line center as still a well-above-average second-line center that um, that makes this team a contender. You know, the basic theory of the Leafs, as we've said before, is we can put together two lines that are better than the two lines you can put together. And Tavares looking like his better self is a big aspect of that. So, yeah, I've been really encouraged with that. Um, and, you know, William Nylander has looked good beside him. Dennis Malgan is also present. <laughs> on that line which is all he needs to be no right yeah absolutely so i i think i i would agree i think that line has been has been very good through the first two games i thought the matthews line was not as strong as it has typically been at 5v5 specifically mm-hmm. uh they i think had a very excellent game against ottawa and like i don't think anyone was seriously worried about them through two games marner and matthews have absolutely earned the benefit of the doubt for like two like mediocre for their standards games at, at, at 5v5 and it's not like they were even actively bad just they were kind of not as good as we would like them to be they're, they're going to be fine and they were fine yesterday mm-hmm. um matthews hasn't i it, it, I, guess I, I was gonna say matthews hasn't been as dazzling to my eye but it could just be like i've looked at like the numbers and he's getting a bunch of shots away and they're from good locations and stuff and just maybe they haven't gone in so i've i've I expect so many of them to go in that I, I'm mentally, you know, giving him a demerit for that, which is a little unfair. Um, I think Marner has been very, very good on special teams in particular and uh, had, a, had a good game at 5-on-5 five five against against the Sens. So that that is that group is going to be as expected. The, the real key for the Leafs is um, is that second line with, with Tavares and Nienetter. So it's been very, very good to see Tavares look the way he's looked so far um especially you know coming off an injury in preseason mm-hmm. where he didn't play a lot of the preseason due to i think it was an oblique strain or something to that effect mm-hmm. so um his yeah his solidity and his completeness i think really really helps that line and between him and elander they have just two kind of great all-round offensive players who can play off each other and do whatever needs to be done in the offensive zone equally well in, in a lot of ways. So I've, I've been happy with that uh, with that group thus far. Yeah, yeah, really encouraging to see for sure. I, I mean, the goaltending has a way of overshadowing everything else um, in hockey as in most 
uh, sorry, and hockey has in a lot of sports in terms of like, if you don't have good pitching, you don't have a good team in baseball. If you don't have a good quarterback, you don't have a good team in, uh, in football. If you don't have a good goaltender in hockey, you're in danger. But it's detracted from the fact that this skater lineup, I think, has generally been pretty good, notwithstanding some mistakes, some sloppiness. So, you know, the, the Montreal game was not dazzling in all respects, for sure. Right. And I mean, I think the Leafs still do have a bit of a weakness. And I think the second line in particular has this weakness of being sort of vulnerable in transition. Mm. Um, and we saw this a lot against Montreal and to some extent against Ottawa too, where the Leafs are sort of dominating territorially, but give up a lot of rush chances. And that some of that is just the, the nature of how the Leafs play. They're going to have the puck more often than they don't against most teams. And naturally when you do so you know the when the opposing team does have the puck it's going to be like a rush chance in all likelihood yeah and some of this is also kind of early season sloppiness you know the Leafs rotations and activations of various defenders um can sometimes come without having the adequate structure behind them to safeguard against these sorts of issues and of course even if you do have those structures like sometimes you're just asking a player to to do something they're not great at or you know you just have three guys deep in the offensive zone so even though you have like for example a two-on-two heading up the other way the third player is now slow to get back or things like that so these things are going to happen i'd like to see the leafs tone them down i think we haven't totally dialed in the risk reward mm-hmm. um for, from jumping up i think there's some times where it's um there's some words it's it, it feels like the Leafs' game management isn't always great. Like the that Hall play preceding the the three two or sorry the four three goal in Montreal, which is like if there's thirty seconds left, like why why are you making that play? You know, to why are you like kind of essentially cheating for offense with thirty seconds left in OT against the Habs? Just like, the be, be a little period, smarter. Get a that. point out of it. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. things like that are going to happen. I'd like to see us you know tone that down to some degree but you know it's hard <laughs> so yeah it I, is. I, I i think i think on the whole we can be encouraged and, and there's also obvious signs that or like obvious room for improvement yeah i think so you know taking two games out of three to start the season is entirely fine and everyone's gonna be a little bit iffy like the first month or so of the season is always a bit of a gong show um teams are still sort of reestablishing what they're supposed to do, what they're good at, all that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think that um, you can certainly be encouraged by the performance of the forward group. That transitions into actually something else. We wanted to talk about mm-hmm. this fourth line. Um, we talked about Zach Aston Reese, David Kampf, Nicholas Obey-Kubel. Um, we said they seemed like a checking line par excellence. Um, now they're here. Um, and the numbers don't seem to love them. To be honest, yeah, they, I mean, they've had some heavily underwater nights, but... Yeah, and, you know, it's early, so... Especially when you look at, like, XG and stuff, that could be just weighted by one defensive breakdown or whatever, and you give up a .4 XG shot or something like that. Yeah. Um, to my eye, they've they've looked fine. They're, they're, they certainly have shifts that are incredibly successful for what they're trying to do, where they're just sort of, like, demons forechecking. And then they don't really do anything when they get the puck, but that's fine. We're not expecting them to. I mean, Kampf got a 5v5 goal yesterday, which is which is really something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> nine more to go. So I, I think they've been fine. Um, they are going to play, like, a totally different 
style, at least in terms of pace, to the rest of the Leafs, right? And and that has sort of borne out so far. They've been low event, and that that's as expected. Uh, the I'd like for them to have better results when in the defensive zone. There's been times where I think they they run around a bit. There's also some times where I feel like, you know, talking about the risk reward of the Leafs' activations and and total hockey in the offensive zone, so to speak. There's mm-hmm. times where I'm like, maybe we don't do this when it's Zach Aston Reese and David Kampf and Obey Kubel out there. <laughs> like I, I'm I'm okay taking a bit of a risk of like, oh okay, you know, Mitch Marner's back playing defense, but it's fine because like the payoff is maybe Morgan Riley's going to pass to Austin Matthews in the slot. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like less fine with it when it's like, well, the payoff is Justin Hall passing to Zach Aston Reese. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're potentially opening ourselves up to some pretty bad outcomes defensively. Um, now this is just me. Like, I don't know. This could be just me pontificating and not really being accurate, but it seems like this is a, group that should play a simpler style and more a more reserved style in the offensive zone um so i i i guess that's something i'd like to see like a a small shift in going forward but on the whole i i've i've been pretty okay with this group um just you know need need to see more from them uh in, in the sense of like let's wait a few more games before really like casting casting real judgment on the on on this group of players yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's some question as to how easy is it to coach one line to play very differently right, from the other ones. And obviously, you know, we've seen it. We know players um, and teams and coaches have done this. If you're a higher skill player, you get more latitude from the coach to try experimental stuff. But at the same time, from the perspective of your teammates on partial line changes or with different defense groups or whatever to some extent they need you to be where players on your team go you know right and we chatted about this in our last pod like so much of hockey the nhl level is like it's sub second Mm -hmm. right so it has to be second nature yeah so yeah if you're it is probably more difficult than i'm than i'm giving it credit for also there's like probably a a player management aspect of this to it as well where it's like you kind of don't want to like embarrass a player by being like okay you know zach ashton reese you're not good enough to do this <laughs> right and, and it's like he, he might be like oh you know fuck off like i can do this right like it, it's yeah. it's there, there, there's there's real issues in, in in making sure that that is handled harmoniously it's not obviously easy to do yeah it's like i mean nhl players all have egos to an extent, right? Like they, they made it to the top of this very, very competitive field. Mm-hmm. They all back themselves to to do to do well. You know, every fourth liner thinks they can be a third liner. Every third liner thinks they can be a top six player, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it is probably not as easy as I'm giving it credit for. Yeah, um, you know, and partially one of the things that appeals to you when constructing this sort of line is guys who are not going to get Mr. Ego about all this sort of thing, right? You you mm-hmm. want guys who are going to be workmanlike about it. And, um, you know, Aston Reese is 28, Abe Cabell is 26, Kampf is 27. That's not old, but that's in the range where hopefully they've become accustomed to the kind of work that they're doing. But yeah, I, I totally agree that there's there are some complexities in getting a line to play differently mm-hmm. that maybe maybe aren't always acknowledged or at least like they can you can see how they lead to like a weird situation now and then where it is zach aston reese getting a weird scoring chance 
um, pinching because that's how the team rotates or whatever. So, yeah, um, that'll be something to watch. They are getting outshot kind of all to hell um, in the minutes they're playing. As you say, um, they're supposed to be low event on net. We are very, very early in this process. There is a point where you maybe aren't happy with these results. We, we can definitely wait and see on them. And I think it's the kind of line that Sheldon Keefe is going to like. Like, if this line ends up underwater in shots, that's not the end of the world. And it won't stop them being played as such, as long as they keep the goals low and close. Mm -hmm. so, so we'll see about that. Um... I, oh, I want to talk yeah. about the, the third line. I guess what we're calling the third line. Engvall, mm -hmm. Kerfoot, Yarncroke. I think they've been great. Yeah. Um, really good combination of players, I think. You know, kind of a, in a cool way. Um, great numbers in the early going. Obviously, everything has to have small sample size in bright shining lights tacked in front of it. When we mm -hmm. say anything about stats in this going. Yeah, but, but like just even on the eye test yeah. level... It, it's a group that makes sense to me, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, I think they're not perfect, obviously. There, there's times, I think Katya said, like, in, in in game one against Montreal, what summed up the Leafs in a lot of ways in that game is, like, Pierre Engvall circling the zone with, like, a negative percent chance to score because, like, the <laughs> halves are just totally in structure and we, we have, like, nothing going offensively. Yeah. And, and this line will be prone to that because they're just not crazy high-skilled. But for a depth line... They have enough offense, I think. Um, we, we've seen we've seen Yarncroke get a get a goal against Washington, I believe. That was a nice goal, a nice pass from from Kerfoot. Mm -hmm. uh, they Kerfoot has gotten a weird amount of like really good chances, which he has not capitalized on as of yet. But yeah. I'd still rather him get those chances than than not. For sure. And I think they they all have. They're all good enough at most things that the line sort of melds together all right. Like, you can see the outline of roles forming in the sense that um, Kampf, or not Kampf, um, Kerfoot is more of a passer and Yarncroke has a bit more finishing skill. And I've seen them try and set him up in the slot for one-timers and whatnot. Engvall uh, is probably the most defensive presence and his his speed and ability in the neutral zone has been really great to start this year. Mm -hmm. um, Engvall was like a surprise, at least to my eye, surprisingly smart player in the neutral zone mm -hmm. uh, especially when carrying the puck like he's very willing to to turn back and regroup and um prioritize keeping the puck and he's able to do that in part because of his his like condor wingspan and and his good skating ability <laughs> yeah. for, for for that size yeah so absolutely. i've i've quite enjoyed uh that line i think as i said the numbers are good i expect them to have relatively good numbers throughout the year i think they'll be better than the team than the opposing team's third line um most nights Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, what more can you really ask, considering that this is a third line of, like, average-ish players, and none of them are breaking the bank? Yeah, I think I remember reading that, like, the average—I forget if this is mean or median. It should be median, as opposed to mean, because that, that's, like, there's a fat right—or, or, sorry, a long right tail of, of player salaries. But, like, the average salary in the NHL was, like, between, like, three and four million, and mm. all of these guys are making less than that. Yeah. So, like that, as a rough metric of like, okay, okay, we're paying these guys slightly below average um, salaries, but we're getting pretty good results from them so far. Like that seems like a good thing. Yeah, if I were to give Kyle Dubas credit for for one thing in particular, and there are several that I think he deserves credit for, but he's always been good at finding 
pretty decent value down the depth chart at forward. And that doesn't mean that all of these bets have worked out because they can't. Statistically, some of them aren't going to go your way. That's what a bet is. But it's delivered more often than I think I could have hoped, really. Like, a lot of these have worked out pretty well. And now he's got a bottom six, which is full of guys like this. Um, that seemed like they're, they're pretty good bets. So, yeah. Certainly content with that. Um, the defense has been... As always, a bit of a point of strife. Right. And, and again, part of this is because of the forwards as well, right? Um, mm. But like, we sort of naturally blame the defenders a little more, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the high-level way I'd sum it up is that, as of right now, the only defender I'm really, really confident in is, is TJ Brody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how it, it kind of goes. Um, Dick Muzzin and Justin Hall had a very unpleasant night in Montreal to open the season, especially at the end there. Um, just was a brutal way to lose the game. What can mm -hmm. you say? Um, there's been some concern with Jake Muzzin because he's getting up there in age, didn't have a great year last year, has battled injuries, including in training camp this year. And I've seen some people debate, you know, like, is he declining? How much of this is PDO? Is he just declining to the point where he can't carry a hard minutes pairing with Justin Hall on the other side of it? Um, how good is Hall, really? And you know, Or how much is he at fault for how things have gone wrong? And how patient mm -hmm. should we be? Well, for now, I think they're going to be patient. Yes. And, I mean, it's also worth noting, I, we see Hall and Muzzin sometimes like struggle with the puck and mm -hmm. whatnot. Pa they're also... They don't play very much with like Matthews, Martyr, Bunting, mm -hmm. right? So they don't get those sort of when, when you look at their numbers and like you know this is one of those things that isolated models are supposed to be able to to account for. But obviously with three games, they can't really take those samples to be much at this point. Um, but they don't get those shifts where the defenders are are where like it's an offensive zone face off and. Matthews wins it, and then that line just spends a minute in the offensive zone doing the fun stuff that the Leafs do really well, and they, they get a bunch of shots and chances and whatnot. Yeah. Right? They don't get that sort of buffer, whereas Riley and Brody do. Yeah, and all you have uh, to do is be present or kind of conducive to that, and suddenly you've tacked on four shots four or something like that that have juiced your numbers. Right. So Muzzin and Hall play a lot more with the depth. Um, and that makes sense because their depth is defensive leaning, right? And, and they actually don't even, they play a reasonable amount with the second line, but like not overwhelmingly. So it's not an extra pattern of like, oh, they, we definitely try and play second line, second pairing a lot. It, it's really depth lines, second pairing. Mm -hmm. And then Sandy and Giordano play a little bit more than you would naively think um, with, with the second line. So we do see them fail to handle the puck and, and like make mistakes with the puck but it's also their job is made a little harder for them by like the fact that their forwards are less equipped to rescue them from these positions than than if they played higher up in the lineup and i'm not saying that's wrong um like that this time on ice allocation is wrong just that like you know muzzin and hall's job is pretty hard yeah that said like yeah they, we we definitely do need them to be maybe slightly better than they have been thus far. Yeah. Um, the overall numbers, again, are fine because the overall numbers for every Leaf is fine. But, like, I thought they were only sort of okay yesterday. Mm. Um, they got better as the game went along, for sure, which, which, is, which is good and preferable to the opposite. 
Um, so, I mean, thus far, I'd say they'd had one bad game, one good game, and one sort of mixed to slightly positive game. Yeah, which is, and, and, you know, okay, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just like, okay, well, with how, with the lack of confidence we have in our goaltenders, it, you'd like to have that confidence in some aspect of your defensive game if it's not in the goaltenders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about how the Leafs defense is probably better than it's gotten credit for. Well, we want them to act like it. Um, they are going to suffer rush chances against. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of inherent in the way that they choose to play to some extent. And that That's a, a comment on the whole team, which is more cycle and possession based. Um, as we've said before, when that goes against you, it tends to go up the ice real quick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I... I mean, the question is, okay, what do you do about it? Well, it looks like they're going to stick with Muzzin for this year at least, I think. First of all, he's got a full no-trade clause until that time, but Mm -hmm. they seem to believe that he has certain qualities that are useful in a playoff series. Um, Justin Hall, we know, has been dangled on the trade market before without a tremendous return. Um, With recent injuries, the Leafs may hope to just keep all of their defensemen together. Um, you know, on the perspective that we need this kind of depth so that they may not even be eager to unload him anymore. If this pairing doesn't really seem to work out, what are the alternatives? Well, one, Timothy Liljegren comes back and then does he get a shot at the Muzzin pairing or how soon does he get it? You know, maybe they don't throw him in there right away. Um, or Rasmus Sandin shows out so well on the right side of the third pairing that they decide to promote him. Um, all of those seem like possibilities to me for sure and I wouldn't be surprised to see them tried and yet for all its flaws and its struggles Muzzin Hall has been old faithful that pairing comes back again and again right and I can't imagine we would see a shift from that unless they were pretty heavily underwater for a relatively reasonable chunk of time and not just underwater in shots and XG like they have to be picking the puck out of the back of their net a lot Mm-hmm. In, or, in order for this to change yeah exactly like and you know and there's there's some logic in it the, the truth be told i know that we talk about goals against it's very vulnerable to pdo and all that sort of thing but we just talked about how defensive numbers can often be governed by what your forwards do when you're with them and the opportunities that you get well um it's possible to play well as a defenseman and not have it show up as well in your numbers as you might hope. So, to some extent, I do buy goals as a safety net on that. Um, at the moment, it's going to be wait and see for sure. I don't think that they're, like, the the terrible disaster that they're sometimes made out to be, especially in the heat of the moment. But, yeah, I mean, that, li- that pairing has to come out pretty decently because we're relying on them so much. Mm-hmm. So, the bar is certainly high for them. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think um, the other thing worth mentioning, uh, we, we should talk a little bit about Sandine and Giordano. They've been, they've been good. They're overqualified in their, in their yeah. current role. Mark Giordano, despite being 39, is still a quite good NHL defenseman. And mm-hmm. like it could, you know, the, the decline could really set in hard at any moment, basically. We saw that happen with Patrick Marlowe as a year went on uh, at one point. But right now, Giordano is still great. So... I remember something something I looked into 
um, very briefly, was like with old defensemen, how how often do they like sort of kind of phase out during the year? And I, I took a very very crude look at this, just looking at like games played for like old defensemen, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like conditional on them being on a roster in uh, at the start of training camp. They tend to play like a lot of games generally. Now, part of this could be like, okay, well, they're if they're old, they're like a respected veteran. They're not going to get pulled out for for no reason. But it, it doesn't seem incredibly common for a very very old defenseman to like just get phased out midway through the year due to ineffectiveness. Mm-hmm. Right. That seems to be more like an off season thing. <laughs> yeah, and that makes a certain amount of sense. And also, the truth is, if you're not quite doing well enough as a defenseman it can be a little bit less obvious than mm-hmm. a visit forward, right? Like, you, it's, you know, okay, everyone has a bad play here and there, and then you look at the end of the year, and there have been a few too many of them. But, like, when a forward um, goes really cold, they stop scoring. And when you stop scoring after a certain point, you get fewer opportunities, especially on the, the power play and something like that, and then you get less opportunity to score. And then suddenly you get these you know, these box scores that sort of tail off towards the end of a career, suddenly you see mm-hmm. a guy who once was a 30-goal man struggling to put up 12 points. Mm-hmm. Um, with defensemen, it may not always be that obvious, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing I want to chat about, at least like in, in this sort of broad, like, quick takeaways from the first three games, the least special teams looks like it's still going to be a really, really big advantage for them. Mm-hmm. So they gave up a, a power play goal to Ottawa yesterday, um, which sucks. But that's that's going to happen. Prior to that, they were, were they were completely fine on the penalty kill, and I, and I don't think that penalty kill was like bad or anything. It's just like okay, well, Ottawa is going to have a pretty reasonable power play, and sometimes good power plays will score on you, and sometimes even bad power plays will score on you. It's not yeah. necessarily your fault. Um, but generally, the penalty kills looked good. It's looked dangerous. Um, Marner is a total menace on the PK. Uh, so when when he's been out there, it's been really really fun to watch and then we know the Leafs power play is going to be legit and and they've been I think very very strong so far against Washington they had one of the best power play shifts I'd, I'd seen in a while which culminated into Vera's goal um, against uh, Ottawa I thought they were sort of hidden this to through through a lot of the game but that's the thing when you're when you have such dangerous players you end up just needing one chance sometimes and that's mm-hmm. what happened with the Nylander goal they they're so unpredictable and they're so um, dynamic. This, this this is a situation where I think kind of the, the exchanging and the moving around in the offensive zone really, really plays to uh, the the benefit of the Leafs. And I imagine that this could be a trend going forward for other teams to sort of ape. Mm. Um, like it, it just, the downside of the, the downside from all the rotation and whatnot just isn't there at 5v4 to nearly the same extent as, as 5v5. Mm-hmm. And if you have pretty reasonably versatile offensive players, which most offensive players are, um, who are at least playing on power plays, then it seems like a pretty a pretty good way to, you know, make you harder to game plan against. Obviously, there's going to be some power plays. Like, if you have Alex Ovechkin, it feels like a bit of a waste to play him at anything besides the left circle. Right. Right, because his skill is so, so, so good there. And same with someone like Steven Stamkos or whatnot. But for a lot of other teams, I think like they could they could probably learn a little bit from how the Leafs vary their looks on on the power play. I think it's been really successful. It was obviously really successful last year. I don't really see a reason why that will ha- 
stop this year. Maybe I'll look back on this with egg on my face later, but I, I, I am relatively comfortable in how confident I am with the least power play at this point. Yeah, uh, I would say so. I think it's a good point that, you know, you look at Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, Riley. I mean, all of those players are capable of handling almost any offensive role. Like, the weaknesses are, I guess, that Marner isn't, like, a plus shooter. Mm -hmm. Um, And even then, you know, he's fine. And Riley doesn't have, like, a big cannon, which is almost an advantage because he's not inclined to overuse it the way that we've seen other teams do. So, yeah. I know some people say, okay, maybe the power play looks good during the regular season, but what happens when the playoffs roll around and it's gone cold? Um, I I think Anthony Petrielli at the hot stove has made that objection before to uh, to lauding the power play too too much. And and I get it. I mean, having an up-and-down series against the Tampa Bay Lightning's penalty kill is not um, the most shocking thing in the world to me. I, I know that uh, at the end of the Canadian division season, it did go cold. It got stale, mm-hmm. and that was unfortunate. But, um, yeah, I think that I tend to believe this will work itself out. Yeah, I mean, my memory is also fading me a little bit here. The Leafs, I don't remember the Leafs power play last playoffs being particularly bad. I thought it was fine. Yeah, that was I... um, kind of my perception of it. And so I should pull up the actual numbers. But um, yeah, it was a little bit quieter than was hoped towards the end of the season. And then I don't know if it's just that it didn't swing the series or whatever. But mm-hmm. let me uh, let me pull up the, the number there. Anyway, yeah, my basic point was like, look, against the Tampa Bay Lightning, your expectations have to be um, somewhat modest. Yeah, the, the, uh, the least power play wound up finishing at 14%. Against the Lightning, which is certainly okay. down from what it was in the regular season. And the Lightning were just short of 20. Right. So, you know, in the end, the Lightning were able to establish the special team's advantage. And in a series that was one goal apart, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can see. You can see yeah, why that no, preoccupies that, people. But that That's fair. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah, on the whole, I think there's a lot more to be positive about than negative about for the Leafs in, in, in the early going. Yeah, you know... Unfortunately, this is what it's like when you have a lot of goaltenders, truth be told. But uh, certainly the Leafs situation is that that's always in the background. And there's always the possibility that a goaltending collapse will render everything else you talk about kind of moot. But with that caveat, they just need to get good enough goaltending from some combination of Samsonov and other people. And if they do that, yeah, we're looking at a good team. Yep, I would... uh... I totally agree with that. Um, I, one thing I am happy to see thus far, and this is uh, this sort of goes in line with what we said about the Tavares line looking kind of rejuvenated, is that we are playing William Nylander lots of minutes, and mm. I think that's been like that's been like the one Sheldon Keefe time on ice thing where I'm like, okay, like I, you know, there's always some proportion of things you just will not agree with with every coach, but this was the one where I'm like, this is feels like such an obvious thing that we need to do more. There's been times where where Nylander just like did not play enough, in my opinion. So he, he's playing a good amount of minutes, and I, I like he should be our third slash fourth most played forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, his performance in both the preseason and the first three games justifies it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think he's he's showing what he can do. He's always going to be William Nylander. There will be moments, but like he's a very very good player. So yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. So. 
Was there anything else that we really wanted to, to chat about? Did we have any, any bad takes that we saw? Yeah, so the difficulty about going and then what happened in response to things at this early stage of the season is that there's a lot of time for it to turn around on you and then for something else to happen. However, I think Mark Spector, I could be wrong about this, somebody in the Edmonton Oilers Media Brain Trust uh, had an article Brain trust is a good way to describe it because I feel like they do just share one brain cell. Yeah, them. I know. Like they traded off on weekends and stuff. Anyway, so yeah, they talked about how Jack Campbell <laughs> might look better behind a responsible defensive team like the Edmonton Oilers. And the thing is, is that if you're going to make the argument that Jack Campbell would look better behind a better defensive team, I kind of get that. When you're the Oilers, that does feel a little bit like whistling past the graveyard, doesn't it? Like, it's mm-hmm. not like you're the 2000s devils here, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and uh, Campbell had a rough game yes. yesterday where I think he gave up like four goals on 11 shots. Um, I mean, some of them were not totally his fault. Yeah. I, I, there was, uh, I forget who, who who did this, but Nazem Kadri basically was like going one-on-one with a defenseman who just like blew a tire. Oh, man. And essentially turned a one-on-one into a one-on-zero, so Kadri got a breakaway and scored. Yeah. Um, some of you know sometimes I think Michael Stone scored on like a seeing eye slapper. I think um, Mangiapane scored off like a rebound. So these things these things yeah. happen. But I mean, the reality yeah, is the, is that it, you know, every goalie is going to have the occasional game where they get blown up. The Oilers are certainly going to keep mm-hmm. giving him chances for a while because contractually they are good kind of required to basically uh yeah and it's fine and there's, i have nothing at all against jack campbell he seems like a great guy it's just yeah absolutely. all this crowing about like how good everything is going to be once he just gets out of that dastardly situation in toronto i'm like i don't think people have updated their opinion of toronto's defense in five or six years mm-hmm. yeah. yeah actually there is one other thing i want to talk about quickly and that, that's sort of relating to matt murray's opening opening night performance so we we sort of chatted about this on on slack um as we have talked about the leafs didn't have a great defensive performance in that game there there were a lot of odd man Mm -hmm. rushes there was a lot of sort of situations that are kind of a bit harder for a goalie to navigate than 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 you would Mm -hmm. like um and at the same time you know people can point to the the score lines today okay murray allowed four goals on this many shots which is like a bad save percentage and if you were wanted to be even more scientific but usually he allowed four goals on like two and a half xg or whatever which is also not mm-hmm. very good um and i guess this always gets into the issue of like how much do you blame goaltenders for poor performances in, in a single game and like how do you mentally view oh that was a save the goalie should have had versus not had and this is something where having a model actually, I think, becomes very, very helpful because often we view goals as like the sort of binary thing of like, okay, the goalie should have had that or you can't really blame them mm-hmm. for that, right? But of course they don't, they exist on a much finer spectrum than that, right? Um, we don't really blame a goaltender for not saving a two-on-one where the pass gets through to the... Um, to the other player and they they have like a kind of pretty good chance on that we're like okay that's that's more on the situation or on the team for allowing that situation to arise but you know we've also 
all seen two on ones get saved. Yeah, like so it's clearly not one hundred exactly. Like you can right? say so, if the goalie throws himself blindly laterally and just sort of gets where it might be going, and he doesn't know exactly where the shot's going to come, and if it hits him, it'll be certainly kind of fortunate for him. But because he's the guy who can throw himself over there that quickly, he will save a certain percentage of them, even though individually, you know, what are his chances of saving it? Like 40%? Right. So when you when you look at things on this binary basis, like, oh, you know, the goalie is the most culpable person versus they are not the most culpable person, it becomes kind of easy to say like, oh, okay, you know, that this is more on the defense than, than the goalies. And you say, repeat that a lot, right? Um but the reality is goalies have a huge amount of control over this, even in situations where the defense fails them. So you can say, okay, yes, the defense is like a problem here, but also a better goalie may have stopped one or two of those. And this is really like aside from Murray's performance specifically. Um, but, you know, I, I was just chatting with, with a colleague. We were like going through the goals. And he's like, okay, you can't totally blame him for that. That cough, The second Caulfield goal was kind of bad. But it's like, but really, these aren't 100 or zero things. It's like it's a 20, 30, 40% you know probability and we're, we're not good as humans at saying oh you know we, i should mentally cre- credit him with 0.2 of a goal there or deduct him with 0.8 of a goal there um and this is where having like a model is actually really useful because over a large sample you can see oh you know th- this goalie saves 80 percent shots 80 percent of the time or 90 percent of the time or 50 percent of the time and that's what makes him better or worse or you know just about average so that's an important thing to think about now Obviously, like the models that we have, public XG models, I think underrated Murray's performance, or, like made him look worse than he was. I don't think it was like really, I think the Habs had more than two and a half expected goals if you like had a perfect omniscient model mm-hmm. that could tell you the true probability of every single shot becoming a goal. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those shots were rush chances. They did have pre-shot movement. Um, they're also, if you want to consider this from good shooters, like, you know, the, the, the Caulfield, the first Caulfield, uh, goal. It's like, well, you know, Cole Coffin's a really mm-hmm. good shooter, mm-hmm. right? So that's an even better chance than if the Leafs had the same thing, but it was Alex Kerfoot shooting. So, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a meandering rant, but but that's sort of something I, I was thinking about. And this is, I guess, a clear ed- situation where having some sort of principled way to evaluate goaltenders is like, to my eyes, clearly better than this... Uh, that's on the defense, and eh, that's on the goalie. Oh, you had to have that sort of approach. Yeah, and it leads to the worst of goalie arguments where we sort of say, okay, but look who else is at fault there. Well, the truth is, it's very rare for there to be a goal against where only one person did anything wrong. And so you'll have all sorts of uh, shifting layers of responsibility. And they all, also the truth is, this is a sample size problem as much as anything else. In any one game... Any goalie from Shesterkin to Vasilevsky to peak Dominic Hasek can have all of those um, chances go against them. You know, the, the save that they make 40% of the time, they don't make it a few times in the course of a night. And so allowing four goals on 2.5 or 3 or 3.5 XG is the kind of thing that happens to every single goalie on the planet. It's just at what point... You start saying, okay, some of these have to stay out or you're not good enough. And that is something that sort of looms over all goaltending over a larger sample. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So I think that's just about everything we wanted to cover this week. Um, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at 
pensionfanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fullman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.